Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois. Thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every week I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. And this week I'm joined by none other than writer and author Nikesh Shukla. Nikesh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So you've recently written a book uh, called Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family, and home, which I have to point out already does deal with several topics, not just race, um, mm-hmm. but certainly touches on that. Why was it important for a focus on race? Sorry, can you just say that again? It glitched a little bit. Yes, I did see that. Sorry about that. Why was it important for you to write a memoir with a focus on race? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I. I I don't know if the subtitle was entirely something that I loved. I think it was very much like a publisher's decision. Um, I didn't want the focus to just be about race uh, on on the book. You know, it it deals with a lot of things. But the reason for calling it Brown Baby, I guess, was just to kind of re-centre how we talk about parenting. And, And, you know, because, you know, whenever whenever I read books about parenting, they were always about the sort of the universal white experience and they were always about a boy you know like all of the babies in those books were always referred to as he and I always found that really strange and so the reason I did this memoir in this way was to basically just send to my send to my children like you know it's it's written as a letter to them both and you know in that epistolary tradition of like people like James Baldwin and ta Coates and Ali Wong and all those amazing writers who wrote such wonderful books that kind of speak to the next generation. I, I wanted to do the same and I wanted to use the book to talk about issues like, uh, yeah, like race, like skin colour, like, you know, mental health, like climate catastrophe, like, you know, um, misogyny, all from the, all through the lens of a brown person talking to his brown children you know and it brings up some like interesting stuff because um in order to in order to address the book to my children I had to basically be honest with them like I never wanted the book to be a space where I land on an answer I wanted it to very much be a line of inquiry because uh, interestingly the, the working title for it the proposal title for the book was dad knows nothing which I think is an, <laughs> um, not what we ended up with but I, I really wanted it to feel like I was just on a line of inquiry trying to figure the world out and figure the world out for my kids almost in real time so that's why I allow myself to ask myself uncomfortable uncomfortable questions that I don't necessarily answer like I guess the what the one specific to this podcast that sticks out is like, I ask myself like how I would feel as a brown male if my kids were racialized as white or were white passing, how would that make me feel? And I, and I kind of go, I don't think I'd like, 
yeah well i say in the book i don't know i don't know if i like that and i have to kind of then wrestle with why that is you know and i think that's quite interesting Mm. so what does the term brown baby mean to you because it comes up obviously it's in the title but there's a few different ways it comes up in the book including when you get harangued by a group of drunk students in bristol yeah it's i get i guess it's mostly inspired by that song uh that that i heard um but that you know the nina simone cover of the oscar brown jr song and what it basically says about how how to raise how we raise brown kids in in an environment where you know we are having to get them to think about things like racism and you know as a father as a male having to think about how I would raise my daughters and how what I'd you know what I need to be aware of and what I not to what I need to not perpetuate and and those kinds of things so um for me the term was just like it was just a statement of intent you know this is who these this book is but you know I what's interesting is like I wanted the book once you read it to feel as universal as possible because these are things that are you know you know non-white children shouldn't be raised in an environment where they're having to think about race and racism and if anything white children should also be raised to to think about these things you know as a dad thinking about how to raise daughters actually the thing that I've come back to is we really need to think about how we raise boys um you know we as parents who are constantly thinking about heritage and lineage and like what the what knowledge to bestow future generations we are doing so knowing that they have no future because of how the world is about to implode and explode because of how we've treated it like all of these things were things that I was wrestling with and I'm not an academic I'm not like a learned person and all this stuff I'm a writer who bleeds on the page and so all of this stuff is very much like a line of inquiry in a literary way trying to figure the world out and trying to figure myself out and also just put my deepest darkest fears on the page mm. um it is literally about the stuff that keeps me up at night you know this is all all of that stuff in the book and the thing about those conversations is the way I have them with my kids now that they're a bit older is different to when I was writing about having them all those years ago and it will continue to change so like th- these are ongoing conversations that we're having about things like race and racism like a really interesting example of of this and just to show kind of show how like my thinking of how to talk to my kids about racism has sort of changed in recent years is so we live like 25 minutes walk away from where the colson statue was pulled down um in bristol and between here and there is the school that my kids go to and the name of the school has an association with Colston and so the school in the wake of Black Lives Matter in the wake of the conversations around Colston's legacy in the city and what we wanted it to be and what we didn't want it to be yeah um, the school started having a conversation with the student body of this primary school like what should we do about Colston let's tell you who he was let's be really honest and unflinching about who he was and then decide what we want to do about the name what we want to do about the emblem and all that kind of stuff and my daughter came home from school one day and she asked me to tell her about the Bristol bus boycott. Um, so for those of your listeners who don't know what the Bristol bus boycott is. So in the 60s, there was a, a big walkout of the Bristol buses because they they refused to hire black people. And so the African and Caribbean communities in the South and the South Asian communities just stopped using the buses. And 
it was led by this amazing guy called Paul Stevenson and a, a group of other activists. And that bus boycott lost the bus company a lot of money and they, you know, money talks, sadly, and they changed their policy. And so my my daughter wanted to, my daughter wanted to know about it. And I realised, um, you know, I started talking to her about what the Bristol bus boycott was. And I realised that in order to tell her what the Bristol bus boycott was, I'd have to explain racism to her, mm. which is like, you know, in all of our conversations about race, we've never talked about racism overtly. And so in, so I started telling her about racism and she just didn't get it. She was like, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, and, and you know, like the simplest way I could try and understand, uh, explain it was, you know, there are people in this world who, treat other people badly because of the color of their skin is different from theirs and that was the easiest way I could understand it she was like this makes no sense to me like she goes to an incredibly diverse school she has a very very you know her family is very mixed her friendship group is very mixed like she was just like I don't get this yeah and um and then I started to be like well you know maybe so you know someone might be racist because and then I stopped myself and I realized that I was just being intellectually dishonest with her because I was now trying to justify why someone might be racist and I realized that like to have these conversations with my daughter I have to see the world from through her eyes like my view of all of this stuff is very world weary it's very jaded it's very like lived experience plus like doing a book that kind of pushed me into being one of the people who had that conversation for a while and um literary festival circuits and therefore I met some of the most awful people known to man and all that kind of stuff and so I'm really jaded when it comes to conversations around racism and you know I'm really jaded when it comes to conversations around how we can dismantle racism because like something so structural and insidious as as, as it is 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 it's almost impossible it's an almost an impossible sisyphus and task mm, is that the right yeah. word sisyphus sisyphian sisyphusian i will uh, you know what i'm trying to say that one um you know it's the greek myth of the guy who like has to push his version of hell in the, the underworld is he has to push the boulder boulder up to the top of the hill and then it rolls all the way down yeah um yeah no, so I'm like so yeah like having to have like having that conversation with her i have to see the world through her eyes and the way she sees it is racism is stupid. It makes no sense. I don't understand why people are like that. And she's right. And mm. sometimes you need that clarity of simplicity to see a thing for what it is and not see the thing for how you've lived with it and how you've kind of adjusted to it over the years. It's interesting because I've had a very similar conversation with my son. I think their school had a lot of conversations after BLM around some of these issues. And it was... Um, interesting to me that I think the conversation at least from maybe when we were kids I don't know what it was like in your school but I think racism when we were kids was like you know there are bad people who just don't like other people whereas now you know when my son asks me about racism it's like yes some people believe some people are superior or inferior based on their skin color and like like your daughter my son's like what what, that sound like that sounds so strange to kids who've grown up in a generation where there are so many children of different backgrounds in their class in their friendship groups and then you say well there was there was a money reason for it you know some people wanted to take things from other people and 
you know they needed but a reason the, to justify it was was how just I, to, yeah 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 no but just just to kind of just to kind of like push back a little bit on that yeah um, please, because yeah. i i do think that there is this myth that um generation like racism will just be generationally fade away and i and i just i don't believe it because i think i think there are those of us who are willing to have the conversation and believe it's an important conversation to have and we have the conversation and that's great but again it's like i worry that it is just echo chambers of those of us who are like we need to do this right and um you know there are you know there are white parents who don't think because it doesn't enter their worldview that uh, on a day-to-day basis who don't feel the need for the conversation and so like it gets minimized at, like at its importance gets minimized and there are people who are like feeding their kids heads with hate and that you know that is so I do want to be, you know there's this sort of like ridiculous thing like decades ago where you know when there was like a rise in like mixed race relationships happening, there was this sort of like really disgusting thing of like, oh, you know, we'll just turn the world beige and like racism will be bred out because we'll all just be one. And it was just such rubbish. <laughs> and and also like, you know, it's de- like demographics change, socioeconomic statuses change, but like, you know, racism exists in places of extreme privilege and racism also exists in places of extreme deprivation. And it also exists in the middle classes. Like it is everywhere in our society. And I just don't, I, you know, much as I want to believe that people like you and me who are having these honest conversations and having uncomfortable conversations and difficult conversations and like, you know, just just having to also be a man talking to my my daughters about male violence and and you know, being a man and like wondering if they'll start looking at me dif- differently mm. because I am you know implicit or implied in that in that thing because I have the capacity for this thing because of you know because of societal conditioning and all that kind of stuff like because, yeah so like we are willing to have these uncomfortable conversations and that's great but more people need to have these uncomfortable conversations and more people need to realize it's important and it is really sad that you know it was you know sadly like a horrific murder of of George Floyd last summer that provoked a lot more conversations but like where are those are those conversations still happening are people like you know was it just last summer's trending topic and we've kind of moved on from you know the murder of George Floyd and for us to kind of recognize um how we talk about racism and how we talk about um what has happened you know how you know black communities feel like so under threat from you know not just from whiteness but you know from like south asian people from south asian heritage and and all the rest of it and then this this summer all people are talking about is like oh isn't it great how diverse the england team is but oh god they should they be taking the knee and you know like the way these things have are now they 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 become like weird symbols that people just sort of feel very entrenched around and I don't know if we're still having 
the nuanced conversations that we were beginning to have last year and you almost go I really like we can't keep having like someone die in horrific circumstances in order to guilt people into having these conversations that just cannot be aware like that where is the humanity in that you know mm. sorry that was a bit of a bit of a rant but <laughs> no 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 we're here for it I mean I was gonna say that um I feel like maybe this summer we're seeing the pushback you know I was speaking to uh, an American guest recently who was saying you know this has been the year of the pushback against BLM where it's been like voter rights for African Americans receded and um similarly here you know a lot of emphasis on um the idea that critical race theory is super damaging although many people who work in the field of race and, and anti-racism would argue that it's like one of the really powerful tools to kind of understand how racism operates so I, I wonder if it's part of the pushback but I, I wanted to ask you given we're kind of very much in the in the midst of the whiteness conversation how do you understand whiteness what does whiteness mean and how does it operate as far as you understand it Oh, Nikesh, are you still with us? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> thought thought we'd frozen for a second there. Yes, no. Yeah, not. I was um, on this uh, on this uh, audio medium. I thought it, uh, a dramatic pause was exactly what the word needed. Um, Necessary at that stage, yes. <laughs> no, no, I was just thinking about it. I guess because like there's this like silly glib answer, and there's the like the more thoughtful answer. And I was just sort of going. Do I go silly and glib or do I? I mean, do you I could you can go with both. We could go with both. <laughs> well, I think I think whiteness is the default. It is the default setting for everyone. And so much of the work is challenging that default, whether it's, you know, where where I guess I'm most engaged with it, which is like um who gets to tell stories or you know whether whether it's like marks and spencers deciding that they can make more money out of the plasters and not masters sorry tesco make deciding they can make more money out of the the plaster industry by like having very varying skin tones mm. um but like the business like the business part of like shifting the default i find fascinating because like it is the default and actually people are now realizing that they can make money out of trying to challenge what the default means like this plaster thing is an interest excuse me this plaster's thing is an interesting thing because like for years you, we've all known where to get like plasters that have different skin tone um you know it, i guess it's a, a progressive decision for tesco to start stocking it but because like a lot of people go to a big supermarket to get all their stuff and if they don't have to like go to a specialist place to get the thing but then what does that mean for all of those like independent people who are just quietly getting on with the business of doing all this stuff all these years and so like i guess for, for me like the way the way racism in society and money and capitalism intersect at the sector and the way like where race and class intersect are really really interesting like yeah. like obviously being from a middle class background you know I have to be careful with like how I engage in those conversations um all I can do is engage in them in like the bet you know the best way to try and be an ally but also like through a lot of the youth work I do I've kind of see that like 
I am like in a very relatively privileged position. There are like, there are moments where being, bring a brown person stepping into a space, things will sometimes be a bit airy for me, but like, it's not as, it's not as pronounced as it is for other people. And I just have to be very, very aware of that privilege and also like use my space to make space for other people. And that's all I can really do. Mm. And so like, that's why I spend a lot of time mentoring writers because it's like the only thing I'm good at is writing and being in that space so like the way I can kind of make continue to make space for people is like to mentor writers and open up that space for as many different people as I can and that's where I feel useful Mm. um but again so much of it is about shifting the default because like you know just from my end of it like the publishing industry like I know there's like much more serious uh, ways of talking about this but I guess this is just like where my expertise like for a long time like before my first novel was published there there was this feeling of like oh we've already got our black writer this year we've already got our, our Indian writer this year we've already like there was like the single story like that we could tell and it had to ultimately be palatable to white readers or white middle class readers and publishing has these like most marketing like most marketing places they have their sort of their customer archetypes where you know they build up these customer profiles of like who their archetypal customers are and publishing's number one archetypal book buyer regardless of the book they have to be able to sell the book to susan susan shops at a supermarket susan is middle class and middle-aged uh or even i think maybe her name's susie i can't remember but like but specifically like but the the assumption is that susan is white it's mm. not specified that she's white because that would that would then engage people in a conversation that would force people to engage in the conversation about how publishing is racist so they don't specify that she's white yeah but what's interesting is if you were to specify that she was white and then you think about like what would be you know the south asian or even like be more specific than homogeneously assuming that all South Asian Susans are the same, like, right. or, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Like the more you break it down, the more potential you have to sell books. And so I think publishing is now realizing that it can sell more books if it is more specific in who it's targeting. So then like the way where business and race intersect is then becomes interesting again, like it becomes about money and yeah. I guess I'm just not interested in the business case for like for inclusion for accessibility for diversity like I'm not interested in going oh we can build our audience if we were just a bit nicer to the minorities like then for me that like I, I care much more about the human case for doing all this stuff like the human case for kids getting to read stories and those stories have main characters who are like who are black or brown or um, have a visible disability or a non-visible disability who are, who are boys and girls and ev- like every child feel like they can engage with it like those books those books you know that have characters who aren't white they're not just for for brown and black kids they're for all kids yeah. because and that's how that's how that default happens because if those books are seen for brown and black kids only that means that you know yeah it's great we get to see ourselves as the main character but to everyone else will always be the sidekick or the other, you know? And so that's where, regardless of how you want to talk about, you know, representation and that 
is it like I just put a pin in that for a second because I, I don't think that representation should be the end game for any of this stuff. But like I'm so I'm so focused on ensuring that when you're a kid, no matter what background you're from, you can see yourself in books. When you're a teenager, like basically when you're making decisions about who you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, what kind of people you want to surround yourself with, you have to be able to like have a healthy cross-section of society in those books and on in those tv shows um and like there's this amazing 11 year old who like five or six years ago she's probably like in her teens now but Miley Diaz did this project called a thousand black girl books because she said there were more dogs called Timmy than black girls in kids books and I was like this is amazing this is exactly what we need and I think if you start there if you start with kids and uh, you know that's part of why I wanted to write Brown Baby because I wanted to write to parents to go these are conversations we need to have Mm. um because like if we do want um if we do want racism to be a thing that like fades away with generations then we all need to be having these conversations I do think that like a lot of the time when we talk about representation people think that representation itself is the end game or the end goal but representation that kind of representation politics is how we end up with people like Pretty Patel presiding over like the most vicious hostile environment anti-immigration um anti um everything well no but like you know we end up with someone like Pretty Patel like caping for white supremacist government politics and like a diverse room is a progressive decision but a diverse room doesn't guarantee a progressive room and I'm much more interested in progressive rooms than diverse rooms right now sorry that was no I meandered my way through that sorry no no that's really so there was so many thoughts like when you were initially speaking about you know the world of editors I was brought back to an anecdote in your book about being told by an editor that your character that you'd written wasn't authentically Asian um which I thought was uh interesting given that as you point out in the the book this is what a middle class white man saying this to you um and I wanted to ask you about uh the extent to which editing or the world of the the literary world is still caught up in uh, versions of that authentic Asian character um yeah so like I guess publishing is currently having a big going through a change change is slow and I think that things are different now to when they were where they were when I first started out and But what I think is interesting is like traditionally publishing is a very middle class industry where the majority of the workforce has been female, but the majority of the people at the very top have been male. (laughs) So like that in itself is interesting and wrong. And they've all been white. Now things are changing. There are, you know, things are still, things are changing, but like what we don't have is like, we have lots of people in like different parts of the industry, like at working their way up through the ranks, having come in, come in at entry level jobs. And so we're still waiting to kind of see those people ascend to powerful positions, but like these people aren't in commissioning roles yet. Like we don't have a, like a great deal of commissioning editors who are not 
white like you know we haven't got to the point of talking about what you know whether they're middle class or working class or um you know related to a lord somewhere i don't know um so like well so publishing uses like lots of like sensitivity readers especially in ya where like you know a sensitivity reader i guess like if you're writing a crime procedural book you'd want a policeman or a lawyer to read the book and kind of go well this procedurally doesn't make sense um and it's kind of like you know if you're writing a book where you feature characters who are from backgrounds other than your own you might want to get people from that community to kind of read it make sure you're not like stereotyping which is interesting because like the people you choose might not necessarily be the right person to ask or they might they might go find and someone else might see something um that they've missed but there's no consensus, is there? There is no exactly like there is there is no consensus. But the the issue is like, while I can see while I can see a need for sensitivity readers, you probably wouldn't need them if you had a much more diverse range of editors working on these books and commissioning these books and choosing which books get to be published. Mm. So, look at that, like it, like. The, uh, the sensitivity readers feel like uh, a plaster, a, a, you know, a skin tone appropriate plaster on a much bigger problem. I know. hear you. Um, you you say in the book at one point about that. What what does it mean to be British when conversations around the subject have their core in protecting Britain's whiteness? And I want to talk to you about that because British identity post Brexit. Uh, British identity you know right now is the football you know is uh, is a big topic of conversation it's always um, uh, defined in uh, to me what feels starkly nationalistic terms as someone who doesn't yeah. identify as British and um, I was just wondering yeah if you could elaborate or unravel that for us what what is being what is this whiteness that's being protected in these conversations on Britain? It's a good question. Um, I'm very good. I was very good at making sweeping statements and then not backing them up, obviously. <laughs> well, I, well um, I, can, I can push I'm you joking, on I'm British joking. values if you want instead. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm just, I'm just being silly. <laughs> like the, the conversation around, the, you know, we are recording, I don't know when this is going out, but we are recording this the, the day after England got into the finals of the Euros. And yeah. um, I find it weird, right? I find... I find following national teams, I, I find it a very complicated thing to square in my head. And like, it just feels weird to be like, to to coin a popular thing, to like, to sort of paraphrase a popular thing, to like to be all open borders in the streets and three lines on my shirt between the sheets. Like it, that feels weird to me. And I haven't quite squared it in my own head. And I think a lot of it is because like, I used to work, for a football club on an anti-racism project in the early noughts. And I saw some really messed up stuff and um, experienced some really messed up stuff. And it made me terrified of football fans. Mm. So like those years ruined football for me. And, and because, you know, you just saw the conditional way they treated their black players as like they were only as good as the last goal they scored mm. and they have a bad game and suddenly you know the slurs come out and the pejorative stereotypes come out and then they score a goal and then you know they're celebrated like like a hero and that 
that I find weird. Mm. And um, following national teams, I find weird. And, you know, you know, talking about Britishness is an interesting thing because like, you know, Brit- Britishness and Englishness are obviously two things that conflict with each other right now, especially like post-Brexit, especially with conversations around Scotland, uh, Scot- Scottish independence and, you know, right. even like some, some, yeah, some, yeah, Northern Ireland and like some parts of Wales or even like, you know, you know, even Bristol, like we, we want to be, <laughs> we want to declare ourselves our own, our own state um but british value like we post brexit i would have hoped that we'd have a robust conversation about what it means to be british now but we haven't we're told to get on board with britain as like an isolationist island without everyone hates uh and you know we kind of like fall in love with our own exceptionalism and where is the conversation about what it what it means to be British right now? It's it it doesn't feel like it's happening, and I, and I do think that this. Sorry, sorry I was gonna say, is it that something's missing from the conversation and what it means to be British, or are we just having the wrong conversation around what it means to be British? Uh, how do you mean? Well, some people would say that we're missing something from the conversation around being British, that we just need to reinsert some missing parts of history that have been cut Got out for censored. And some people might say, well, we're just having the entirely wrong conversation around being British, that we need a whole new narrative um, about national identity. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I do I do think we have need to have an honest conversation about national identity like obviously every country every state has had to some degree some bloody history but you know we don't like we don't have to constantly compare ourselves to other countries and their histories let's just reckon with our own first you know it's not about going this was the least bloody of all the empires that have ever been because you know it's not fucking competition <laughs> like um and it was it was a bloody brutal empire like how many millions of people died how many millions of people or you know had things taken away from them um you know like i think a lot about operation legacy which was this um special branch project to kind of disappear loads of documents around the british empire and you just think what were they hiding Mm. if like we know how bloody partition was what don't we know Mm. if if partition is the palatable bloody bloodshed and partition was one of was a hugely awful thing yeah what don't we know what is being covered up what was covered up by operation legacy and that that um that willful denial of our history that willful denial of our history i i have a real problem with and do you because yeah do do you think that that is part of why the racism isn't kind of the conversation not even the conversation that the issues of inequality around race aren't moving forward as they should be would you center that issue Yeah, because 
the British Empire is very core to where we are now as a country, where where we are in relation to other parts of the world. Mm. It, you know, people, you know, where, when people are like, but you know, what, no one ever talks about the Ottoman Empire. We're not living necessarily in the direct consequences of the Ottoman Empire in the oh, same way that, that we are living. Yeah, we're in the same way that we're living in the direct consequences of the British Empire. Look at the, you know, the Middle East, look at America, look at like not even too far from our, our like not even too far from our doorstep, like the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And, Absolutely, you know, the, yeah. like it's everywhere. Um, it's everywhere you look from like the statues that you don't notice on your walk home to the like the emblem of my daughter's school uniform to like um, the fact that we we have to have a podcast where we interrogate whiteness you know like it's everywhere Mm. and we're not allowed to say that anything was bad and I guess I am curious about who gets to be critical (laughs) like white academics are sort of I, I mean I don't I don't know how white academics are, are treated when 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 they talk about stuff but I do see that like you know brown and black academics you know much more pronounced for for women of color you know when they talk about the brutality of the empire and and racism they're like they get daily male hit pieces like yeah. d- about them all the time like being brother gopal like, I don't know how I don't know how she bears to engage with the outside world because she has seen the absolute evil of the press for yeah. just wanting us to have a robust and honest conversation, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and, and despite having written a, a pretty incredible book about an alternative way of engaging with our history, which I think offers a really beautiful potential for recreating a national story. Um, but none of that, of course, is is really engaged with and everything's kind of reduced to, um, in many ways, covers for racial slurs, it seems to me, um, particularly in her case. Um, just before we go to the quick fire round, because I know we're a bit short on time now, I wanted to ask you about advice that you might have for other parents who are looking to have the conversation uh, about race with their kids was there anything you learned on this journey of thinking about it of doing it that you could share that other people might um find helpful it's a tricky one I don't know if it is a tricky one I think that the main thing is don't be scared of getting stuff wrong don't be scared of sitting in your discomfort when you get stuff wrong and don't be scared of people calling you out when you get stuff wrong it's what you do next that counts right like we raise our children all the time to think about you know marvelous mistakes like we make mistakes all the time is what how we learn from those mistakes and get better this is what we instill in children all the time and yet as adults we either disengage from the conversation or double down on our position because we're so scared of sitting in our discomfort about getting stuff wrong. And like, I get stuff wrong all the time. Like I am a problematic idiot and I, I have to own that. And I have to own that. Like I will get stuff wrong. Like I will get stuff wrong when, you know, trying to be an ally to um, my trans brothers and sisters, but, the fact that I am trying to be an ally and if it's where, if and when it's pointed out to me what I've got wrong, I will 
go and do my research and try to do better next time was like do, do you know what I mean like it's the same with I think it's the same with the race conversation like don't be don't think this isn't your conversation like whiteness will have to whiteness has to dismantle whiteness you know um like I'm not going to end racism white people are going to end racism so like the more that white people engage with the conversation early with their kids I think is really important there's a really brilliant book uh, by Dr Pragya Agarwal called Wish We Knew What to Say which is a really simple great book about how to talk to kids about race great that's, if you are a pe- yeah. sorry say that again no that's the plug <laughs> yeah buy that book buy that book read that book have that conversation hmm. um so are you ready for our quick fire round no, but I'll give it give it my best. Great. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? Um, my definition of whiteness is the def- the default that holds power over everything. I don't know if that's the right answer, but it was quick fire. I just there's no there's no right. Mind. Well, I'm definitely not the one to tell what is the right answer. I'm just looking for answers. Um, what is the root of racism? Um, power, money, and evil. <laughs> These are rubbish answers. What um, is <laughs> sorry, there? Sorry, listeners. I'm... <laughs> Is there a cure to racism? And if so, what is it? No, there is no cure. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I'd love to believe in that utopia in the same way that um all the people in Waterworld, the kevin costner film in the early 90s that was a bit rubbish believed that there was one bit of dry land left and that a kid a tattoo on a kid's back which is a weird thing in itself is going to lead us there um is who you date or marry political or is love blind um Yes to both. <laughs> okay. Um, two things. Two things can be true at the same time, and they can be difficult truths. <laughs> um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, but a lot of my work is about decentering whiteness, and the more we privilege dismantling whiteness over empowering people from minority backgrounds the more we just confirm that whiteness is the default great thank you so much (laughs) uh thank you so much Nikesh for joining us um if people want to connect to your work is there anywhere that you would like to refer them to uh please buy my books there's a global pandemic going on and uh, bookshops have only just reopened and they need your business and um no because i think you know where people choose to buy their books is completely down to them and i mean like if you're able to not use the a site then please don't use it but there are some people for whom 
that is the only way that they can access books and you know that's that is entirely their choice and or not not it's not even their choice like I remember like being very heavily anti-Amazon and and someone who has like chronic pain was like I live in a rural area and holding a Kindle is the only way I can read a book and so and I was like yeah I should be less um yeah basically this is just a long way around of saying wherever you get your books no judgment for me please buy a book um, you can follow Nikesh on Twitter. Are you also on Instagram? I have accounts on both. I am currently taking a break from both. <laughs> taking a break from both. Fantastic. Well, um, one last time, Nikesh Shukla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you. <laughs>